Well, alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Gutowski Files, starring Stephen Gutowski. Stephen is the founder of TheReload.com and the host of the Weekly Reload Podcast. Stephen, how are you, sir? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm not doing too bad. So every week, just like John and I will sit down and discuss the badge cams before we obviously record them and talk about training points and stuff, Stephen and I will sit down and talk before we do this this segment, and um, invariably we end up talking for 45 minutes. Uh, and then we finish, then we talk for another 45 minutes. But that's good. Um, I, I would say yeah. Stephen and I are friends. So uh, every time it is always a, an interesting conversation. We were talking, just talking about relatives uh, with, you know, had guns growing up and, uh, you know, showing your kid a gun and explaining it to them versus locking it away and saying, don't touch that, you know. Um, so anyway, of interest. Uh, more interesting than sports, by the way. Uh, just throwing yeah. that out there. Uh, so this week we are discussing two court cases. Um, the first of which is a federal judge who ruled on a DUI case out of, I believe, Pennsylvania. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. in, in the circuit. Yeah. The, the 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 case basically was a guy who had a DUI or two or three. Uh, and at some point the state said, okay, that's enough out of you. We're taking your gun privileges for the rest of your life. And so that case, uh, went to the federal level and Stephen is going to tell us what happened. Yeah. Well, sort of, right. I mean, it's, it's interesting the way that this works because, uh, Pennsylvania didn't disarm this guy. Uh, he was convicted of, uh, well, really he only ever got convicted of one DUI, but he, uh, I will get into the details of that in a little bit, but he was convicted of this DUI uh, and it was a misdemeanor in Pennsylvania. But according to the feds, it counts the same way as a felony under the law that makes you a prohibited person that makes you uh, not able to possess firearms uh, because the potential jail sentence could have been more than a year in prison. Okay. He didn't actually serve uh, any time in prison. Actually uh, he, he did do 90 days of house arrest, but uh, he, he wasn't actually in jail at all. Um, but because he could have been, in jail for more than a year under the sentence that qualifies him under federal law, the same way that somebody who's convicted of an actual felony and spent more than a year in prison is qualified. And so that's why he wasn't able to own guns. These uh, now these DUIs that he got, um, there were three DUI arrests according to the, the case. And one of them was the first one. He did like a diversion program mm -hmm. Uh, right. So he didn't actually get the conviction on his record because he did this diversion program that was in 2001. Uh, uh, now, of course, uh, they're not the law is not dumb. And so they do have caveats to these things, sure. these diversion programs, so that if you reoffend later on in a certain time period, usually that means that you you have to face a tougher sentence. And so that's basically what happened here. He was now he was arrested again a little while later and then the charges were dropped in that case for DUI. So that wasn't relevant, but the then he was arrested a third time for DUI and he was convicted and the previous uh, DUI arrest that ended in the diversion program basically led to an, a sentence enhancement in the second DUI case and that's what got him prohibited and he sued over this uh, claiming that it violates the second amendment rights because, you know, this was not a violent crime. It didn't involve firearms. And, uh, under the Bruin standard, which was handed down last year, which we talked a lot about on the show, right? Mm -hmm. 
there isn't a historical tradition of disarming somebody like him who isn't uh, convicted of a violent crime, isn't necessarily viewed to be a unique danger to society or to himself uh, in terms of owning firearms. And, and so that's where this, this case came in. So two things, um, our very own dear John Korea, uh, the founder of active self-protection was struck by a DUI driver. And he would probably argue that it is a violent crime waiting to happen. You know, when you get mm-hmm. behind the wheel drunk, and I think that's probably true. The difference being this guy managed to not evidently, as far as I know, he, have, he managed to not injure anybody in the process. But right. one of the things we talked about today before we hit the record button is, do you know how many times you have to drink and drive before you actually get caught? And to be caught more than once means conservatively, honestly, probably hundreds of times that this happened, he didn't get caught for. Could be. That could very well be, uh, especially because he did this multiple times. Right. Uh, and was arrested at least three times for it. Again, probably. I don't know for sure. And the other thing, yeah. real quick, is... is Although, interestingly, one real quick point sure. on that. His last conviction was in 2005, and he hasn't been arrested for it since then. Right. So uh, there is, at least according to the record we have, some reason to believe that perhaps he uh, uh, has reformed himself at this point. Um, and it is a bit easier to avoid drinking and driving these days with things like Uber and, and Lyft around. But regardless, uh, uh, you, uh, yeah, and, and look, the court does talk about how obviously what he was doing was dangerous. Right. Um, and that there is a clear connection between alcohol abuse and uh, gun violence as well um, in the sort of general sense. Uh, and so those were considerations in this case uh, for sure. Yeah, and I think the other point I was going to make, and you don't have to respond to this necessarily, uh, this isn't a question, but I, I think it's worth noting that, you know, if you if you get enough DUIs um, or, you know, even enough, you know, crazy speeding tickets where you're doing 120 on the freeway, eventually they will permanently revoke your right, excuse me, your driving privileges um, mm-hmm. versus your gun, your right to own a gun, your driving is considered a privilege, your license is a privilege to use the public roads is a privilege. Um, I think it's worth noting that someone who who has that kind of decision making repeatedly as far as mixing alcohol with a potentially dangerous object, there there's an argument to be made, I think. Uh, I'm not making it, but I think there's an argument there that I'm sure someone who's been the victim of, you know, of a drunk driver would would push back and go, No, I don't want that guy, you know, owning a gun. And I understand that perspective for for sure. Our well, that's the government's position for yep. sure in this case. They, I mean, they certainly agree that this the, that this uh, this plaintiff, this individual uh, Williams is his last name, uh, is a danger, an unusual danger to society, and shouldn't be allowed to own firearms. I mean, that's what the federal law. Right now, it's a the federal law is sort of a blanket thing. Anybody who commits any sort of felony uh, or crime punishable by more than a year in prison is dis disarmed for life under the the federal statute. But yeah, that, that is in, in line with the arguments that they would make, you know, the people who've committed these sorts of serious crimes um, are viewed by the government to be more dangerous, even if the crime wasn't violent in, in the, in a direct way. Yeah. And before you go to the comment section, I'm merely pointing out that some would argue this. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm as second amendment as it gets. Um, I'm, I'm as libertarian on the second amendment as you can possibly, but I was just pointing out that's a possible argument. So our next story, another story over at the reload.com, this one by contributing writer, Jake Fogelman, um, dated November 14th, federal judge upholds Colorado gun purchase waiting period. But this one's uh, the, the, the title kind of belies the, the kind of buried the lead a little bit. So tell us about what's going on over there. 
Yeah. Well, so there was a, a lawsuit um, under the same, you know, Bruin standard here, uh, which goes after Colorado's new waiting period for gun purchases. Uh, you know, there's a three day waiting period in Colorado to, to after you buy your gun before you can take it home. Uh, you know, and a couple other states have something like that. California has a 10 day one, I believe. Um, and, and even Florida, I believe, has a, a waiting period unless you have a concealed carry license. Um, you know, so there's there's policies like this around the country. Um, and this one was upheld by a federal judge out there who, um, you know, th- this one I kind of called um, the one weird trick approach to uh, Second Amendment litigation. Okay. You've seen this a couple of times before in the post-Bruin world. But basically, this judge said that, uh, you know, the first step in the Bruin test is to look at the text of the Second Amendment and see if the the activity being regulated is implicated by the text. Right. And and he said it's not because, you know, what does the text say? Right. You have the right to keep and bear arms. It doesn't say that technically that you have the right to buy or sell Mm. arms. Right. That's essentially what he what he found. And so he said this is not. Second Amendment protected activity. So wow. the law can stand. Uh, now, it didn't end there, but that was kind of the, my view was a bit of a, oh, look at this one weird trick the founders right. don't want you to know, about, which is like, sure, you can't ban the keeping and bearing of arms, but you can uh, ban the manufacture or the sale or the purchase of them, which is basically, you know, obviously the same thing um, in practice. Uh, but you know, so that, that part of it, we've seen this before. It's not the first time, uh, a judge, uh, perhaps a left-leaning judge, I think it'd be fair to say this is a Carter appoint. He's also fairly old. He's, uh, you know, he's appointed by Jimmy Carter. So that gives you an idea. I, I was just about to point that out. I saw that in the article, Jimmy Carter appointee, which, which a Carter appointee, which means the oldest I could have been when he was appointed was eight. Eight or nine years old, so that's yeah, wow. Not a lot of Carter appointees around anymore, um, but you know, uh, and so maybe there's a bit of a generational uh, a, a disconnect there as well. Could be, uh, especially like a, if Jimmy Carter was also a you know a Democrat, a left leaning, fairly left leaning Democrat. So this would be a an older, more liberal uh, judge, perhaps, uh, who's making this ruling. But and and uh, you know, just kind of. Uh, doesn't have a lot of respect, I think, perhaps for the the Bruin decision. But I will say that he did, despite ruling that way on on the first point that the text just doesn't cover gun sales at all uh, or gun purchases at all, the acquiring of guns. Um, he did go on to say that even if it does, right, that he all you'd have to do is find uh, a relevantly similar analog in the historical tradition right? Um, in order to uphold the law. That's what the Bruin test is. It doesn't have to be a historical twin. You don't have to have the exact same regulation from 1792 you know, uh, as, as what exists today. You just have to find something that's close, right? Uh, that, that's an analog. That's you know, the term. That's what it means, right? Um, and so actually, interestingly, this is where these two cases intersect mm. because the first case, uh, there, there were these historical laws that existed uh, that allowed uh, law enforcement to or government officials to disarm somebody who was actively intoxicated while they were 
uh, for instance, performing their militia duties in early America. Okay. So if somebody got drunk while they were on, on watch uh, performing their militia duty, they could be arrested and disarmed. They could have their guns taken away, at least in the moment, you know, temporarily. Um, and so that came up, as you might imagine, in the, the DUI case as well, because that's, you know, this is somebody who's uh, involves guns and intoxication. Uh, now, that judge in the DUI case said this isn't a close enough analog because uh, this is this is a temporary disarmament. Right. Right. Uh, and so it's not the same thing because uh, the, the Williams in that case was disarmed for life. Right. Uh, he wasn't dis- like if the police had found him with a gun and took taken his gun away, that would probably, you know, when he was being arrested for for drinking and driving. Right that would probably be constitutional under this test, but disarming him for the rest of his life based off of DUIs, uh, the, the judge found isn't this isn't relatively similar. It's not close enough to the modern regulation to be a good analog. Whereas in uh, this three day waiting period case, this judge, the, the, the Jimmy Carter appointee, he argued that actually that those Laws uh, allowing somebody to be disarmed if they were intoxicated make a good analog to the modern three-day waiting period law hmm. in Colorado. So, um, you know, the pretty pretty wildly different, I would say, approaches to what constitutes a viable historical analog for uh, you know a modern gun law. Yeah, I have a feeling we're going to see quite a few of these moving forward. I was trying to think of if there was any sort of analogous law relating to DUI, like, you know, the, the, uh, the don't, don't ride your horse drunk act of 1739, you know, thou shalt right. not get on thine oxen while thou is, um, inebriated or something like that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the things, uh, that brewing goes into, which is why they don't require historical twins as they call it. Right. You know, that, that's what the court said. They anticipated that there are obviously going to be situations that arise in the the modern era from essentially advancements in technology, uh, changes in, in society that will uh, make it really impossible for there to be a historical twin. DUIs didn't exist at the founding because we didn't have cars. Right. right. And so, you know, the change of technology is supposed to be something that judges are meant to take into account when they look for these analogs. That's why they're not, they're not, it's not meant to be, they, they talk about this, um, in Bruin is like, it's not meant to be a regulatory straitjacket or a blank check. Mm-hmm. That's how they talk about it. So, and then this is why you can see, um, even if you sort of eliminate some of these, these rulings that appear to be like the, oh, uh, well, you know, it just says you can keep and bear them. It doesn't mean you can buy them. Right. Uh, types of rulings. There's still a lot of, uh, people coming down on opposite sides of the question in good faith because it's not necessarily a very easy test. And that's why I think the court itself is probably going to have to answer uh, a lot of these questions. They're going to have to weigh in on more and more cases, I would imagine, to really flush out this this test. Because, yeah, oh, it's not a regulatory straitjacket, and it's not a blank check. So you want something in the middle there, but what exactly does that mean? Sure. And that's where a lot of judges are coming down on opposite And a lot of people of goodwill can come down on, on opposite sides of these questions, as you mentioned with some of the considerations for drunk drivers. Right. Um, and, and 
so I think you're seeing a lot of that and you're going to see more of it. I mean, that's what the court is doing right now with the Rahimi case, which is the domestic violence restraining order case. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably going to give some guidance or at least maybe it will. We'll see. Uh, we talked about obviously on previous episodes on that, but it's, it's also uh, that range case that I mentioned earlier with the, uh, the guy who committed food stamp fraud. That was the third, that, that really was a huge influence on this DUI case because they're in the same circuit and what the third circuit says uh, when it's taking a case at the appeals level at the, the full court. And that's what they did in range uh, with the food stamp fraud guy. Uh, and they found that he, he can't be disarmed because it's not similar. That had a huge effect on the DUI guy because that's from a judge in that same circuit. And, and so he has to abide by what they're, what his, the court above him is, is finding and now it's likely that the Supreme Court is going to take that case up too. Mm-hmm. That's what the the government has appealed it up to the Supreme Court. Uh, they're asking them to take it in light of whatever they rule in Rain, in uh, Rahimi. So we're probably going to get some more answers to this, uh, some more guidance. Because right now we have, well, this shouldn't be a straight check and it shouldn't be a blank check. So judges, please try to find some relative things that are similar in both the how and why even though technology has changed and society has changed and there's lots of different factors that go into, you know, figuring out what's relatively relevantly similar to the past. And um, they're probably going to have to keep doing more of these cases to, before they get to a test that's going to have less, uh, less disagreement in the lower courts over how it should be applied. You know, I, I can't help but notice there's been an uptick uh, in sort of the number of gun-related cases in the Supreme Court, it seems to me, over the last couple of years, and that just coincides with the rise of the active self-protection and the weekly reload podcast. Coincidence? I don't know. Yes, I, I, you know, maybe Thomas is listening to these every week. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that would if be he's nice. smart, I think he should. So, uh, just like our our dear listeners who are listening right now, they're probably the smartest people out there. Probably the smartest office. people listening to this show. Everyone is saying this. All right, so uh, I want to put one more thing out about the Colorado case. The uh, the Rocky Mountain Gunners um, Association, I guess, or or organization, uh, which is one of the plaintiffs challenging that waiting period law. There's a quote here from uh, Taylor Rhodes, their executive director. Quote, we still have one more chance at a preliminary injunction via the 10th Circuit panel where we already have a, had success earlier this year. Uh, that's why I have instructed uh, that group, RMGO's attorneys, to appeal, immediately appeal this decision and take it to a higher court. So we haven't heard necessarily the last of this issue with the waiting period, right? No, absolutely not. I think that I, I think they will absolutely appeal. And I would think it's likely they'll have more success. Uh, as they get up the line. And I, this is a situation where the logic used in the case sure doesn't seem to be in line with what the Supreme court wants, right. but also, you know, you'd have to get up to the Supreme court for perhaps for that to matter. You know, I, I, how the 10th circuit looks at it, I think it'll be interesting to see. Uh, it doesn't, this is when I call it one wheel, one weird trick, yeah. like which I love by the way. Yeah. That means I don't think it's going to be the prevailing view that upholds these sorts of laws. I just don't think it's an argument that is going to have longevity. But the the problem you're facing if you're a gun rights activist and you're looking at some of these rulings is that you've got to get up to a friendly court. And the, the issue is uh, the way that the federal court system works 
is that you know everything's broken up into different circuits and those circuits tend to um, not overlap ideologically because mm-hmm. they tend to be in states like the ninth circuit is a bunch of very left-leaning states that it's it's deciding from and uh, the way the appointment process works is that pe- uh, senators from those home states get a an out uh, a pretty big say in who gets appointed in those circuits so they tend to be a bit divided by ideology too. And obviously the only states that have the more strict gun laws are the more left-leaning states and they are governed by circuits in the the federal court level that are, that have more left-leaning judges. And so you have to get all the way really up to the Supreme court in some of these cases before you're going to, you're going to see the possibility of some of these, uh, some of the reasonings used here right. actually getting uh, significant pushback from from the federal court system. You know, a lot of people are complaining about the age of our presidential candidates. They're the two main ones right now, the front runners anyway, are pretty old guys. Um, and I don't think I want my Second Amendment law um, sort of uh, uh, what's the word? curated, I suppose, by um, by a guy who at any moment you could see this judge could be on Good Morning America celebrating his 100th birthday with a nice little picture. Let's keep it, uh, I don't know, let's keep it between like, I don't know, 25 and 65, somewhere in there, please, moving forward. Stephen, I appreciate it. Folks, if you are lamenting, as we all should be, the lack of down-the-middle scene, sober reporting on the Second Amendment, I encourage you to go over to thereload.com and consider getting a membership. At the very least, go over there and check it out. Um, There's all sorts of perks. You get stuff a day early. You get the podcast a day early. You get exclusive uh, articles and analyses analyses, um, from Stephen and his team. And without without your dollars going towards his work in the form of membership dues, he can't continue his important work. And what he's doing is important, and I think it's unique. So um, go over there and check it out. Stephen, as always, sir, you have the last word. Absolutely. 